is that we're working on a new book on grading with integrity. And what I did as a part of this book was to go back and look at the number of new books published on the topic of grading. And it went from 1970 to today. It is really fascinating because if you look from 1970 to 1990, those 20 years, there was only really one major book published on the topic of grading. A total of four, but only one that really had an impact. And it was a book called What'd You Get? by Kirshenbaum and Sidney Simon and a group of authors. And it was, in fact, the University of Michigan just published the 50-year anniversary of that book. And so he would get 20 years from the one major book on grading. From 1990 to 2000, there were seven new books came out. Yeah. From 2000 to 2001, there were 14 new books came out. From 2010 to 2020, 57 books came out. Welcome to the Grading Podcast, where we'll take a critical lens to the methods of assessing students' learning, from traditional grading to alternative methods of grading. We'll look at how grades impact our classrooms and our students' success. I'm Robert Bosley, a high school math teacher, instructional coach, intervention specialist, and instructional designer in the Los Angeles Unified School District and with Cal State LA. And I'm Sharona Krinsky, a math instructor at Cal State Los Angeles, faculty coach and instructional designer. Whether you work in higher ed or K-12, whatever your discipline is, whether you are a teacher, a coach, or an administrator, this podcast is for you. Each week, you will get the practical, detailed information you need to be able to actually implement effective grading practices in your class and at your institution. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Robert Bosley, one of your co-hosts, and with me as always, Sharana Prinsky. How are you doing today, Sharona? I am doing well. I think I'm staying drier than you might be staying because we are in like the historic storms of Southern California. How about you? I am doing well. It is very rainy here, but I am incredibly excited about uh, this recording. We have a very special guest on with us. So why don't you tell everyone who we have with us today? We are very excited to have Dr. Thomas Gusky with us today, one of the people that has been so inspirational in our journeys. Dr. Gusky is Professor Emeritus in the College of Education at the University of Kentucky, where he served as Department Chair, Head of Educational Psychology Area Committee, and the President of the Faculty Council. His work is dedicated to helping teachers and school leaders use quality educational research to help all of their students learn well and gain the many valuable benefits of that success. He is the author of over 25 award-winning books and more than 250 book chapters, articles, and professional papers on educational measurement, evaluation, assessment, grading, and professional learning. Many of us in this community have read his Case Against the Percentage Grade, which has been uh, sort of a starting point for many of us. And I believe, Dr. Kessie, you have two, well, I'm going to call you Tom. Tom, you have two recent books out that were fascinating to talk about as well, Engaging Parents and Families in Grading Reforms and the third edition of Implementing Mastery Learning. So welcome. Well, thank you, Sharon and Robert. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, like I said, it, you have been such a huge influence on me personally and so many people in this community that I'm aware of. So it is just a great pleasure. One of the things that we always like to do with one of our new guests, which this is going to be fascinating hearing this about you, but is to ask them about their origin story. Like, how did you get involved in grading reform and alternative grading? Well, it's a quite unique story. To be honest, I was not originally trained as a teacher or in education. My undergraduate major in college is actually physics and electrical engineering. But I graduated from college with my degree in the year to discover that I have no talent in that field at all, which was a terrible disappointment to my father, who is an engineer. And I was at a party one night, which I did a lot at that time, talking to a friend of mine who'd been looking for a teaching job. And he told me about this private school that needed a middle grade math teacher would also coach. And this was the third week of August. So I went and applied for the job and they hired me. Of course, to this day, my, my father also claims the only reason I was hired is I passed a mirror test. I put a mirror under my nose, it fogged. And so I got the job because it was the third week of August. They needed a middle school math teacher who would coach. But I began teaching middle school, grades seven and eight, and I just fell in love with it. 
Uh, I know a lot of people struggle with that age of, of children, but I, I just thought they were terrific. So as a contingency for being hired, I was required to gain my certification. So I began taking education class at that time, gained my certification, moved to a public high school from there, really enjoyed teaching that too, and then decided that I really wanted to go back to graduate school to learn how to become a better teacher. I began in Boston and then ended up at the University of Chicago, where my advisor and the chair of my doctor dissertation was Benjamin Bloom. Uh, so it was from that that I really gained this this sort of emphasis in my career on educational measurement, evaluation. Uh, Bloom headed a program at the University of Chicago called the MESA program. MESA was an acronym for Measurement, Evaluation, Statistical Analysis. So it was his influence that really pulled me into that area and got me really thinking about these issues in deeper ways. For anyone that thinks that name sounds familiar, Yes, we are talking about the Bloom from Bloom's Taxonomy in the historical book that he wrote, I think, was in 1960-something. Actually, the first version of the taxonomy was 1956. Oh, wow. Uh, It came out. They started working on it, actually, in the late 1940s. Benjamin Bloom at that time was a, he was what was called the university examiner. What had happened is, after the Second World War, and the GI Bill in particular, universities were seeing an onslaught of new students and universities were growing very rapidly. It became a problem to have any consistency in some of the ways they evaluated students. And so many universities developed what they called an office with the university examiner. And this examiner would help the faculty in different departments prepare exams that would be then common to all students taking a particular course. So if you took English 101, there would be one exam that the Office of the University Examiner would coordinate developing, administering, scoring, and providing results. That gave them some consistency across. And so many universities had these offices. Bloom was the head of that office, was the University Examiner at the University of Chicago. And he thought it would be sort of interesting to pull those people together. And so he began pulling these universities people together at the American Psychological Association meeting in 1949, and they talked about their common problems. And one of the problems they faced was these exams were so drastically different in terms of what they were asking students to do. At the University of Chicago, for example, the biology examination had 600 questions on it. The the philosophy exam had two (laughs) And so what you saw was this tremendous difference, especially in terms of the complexity of the questions were being asked. So it was from that early work in the the very late 1940s and early 1950s that they got together and they developed this categorization scheme, what they called a taxonomy, to look at the cognitive complexity of both learning objectives and the questions that would be derived from those learning objectives in terms of what they required students to do cognitively in order to answer the question. And so they developed this first version called the Taxonomy of Educational Objectives, the Cognitive Domain. They had a first version in 1954, couldn't get it published. And everybody turned it down. And then finally, in 1956, a very small publisher in New York called McKay Publishers picked it up and they printed 5,000 copies. Between 1956, when it was originally published, and 1966, it did not sell those 5,000 copies. Between 1966 and 1976, it sold over a million copies. It became the basis for curriculum development work throughout the world. Wow. But I can recall when I first began my academic career, and I was one of the very last doctoral students of Benjamin Bloom, and I'd be frustrated because the things I was writing were not getting out and people were reading them. They always said, remember the taxonomy. So if they're really good ideas, they may be ahead of their time. <laughs> Wow, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. I, I still can't wrap my head around the 600 question. <laughs> oh, come on. I think we've seen some of those, boss. <laughs> yeah. So you worked with Dr. Bloom. And what was your early work? I mean, the case against the percentage grades is one of the first ones of your work that I really came to, and that came from Boz. So where was that in your overall? Was that early on or how did that play into things? Okay. No, actually, early on, when I 
finished my degree there actually while I was still working on my degree at the University of Chicago, began working with Chicago Public Schools. I began as a program evaluator and then became the director of research and development for Chicago Public Schools. At that time, we had a lot of programs that were going on in the public schools based around sort of assessment and evaluation, but instructionally, we were focusing on mastery learning. And so that was really my first major entry into it because I'd come to the university as a former teacher. And so Bloom's work was very theoretical and he was really looking for ways to make this more practical. And I provided that venue for him. So we implemented a lot of mastery learning programs in the Chicago public schools at that time. We had programs, we were invited to go to New York City and work with New York City public schools, initiate programs there too. But my emphasis in my own personal research was actually on teacher change, how teachers change, what problems change, what are the inhibitors to change. And it wasn't until leaving the, the public school system, taking the job at the university and beginning my own sort of personal research agenda that I really got fascinated by the issues of grading. It was actually in the, I guess, middle 1990s, I was a member of the publication committee for ASCD and the publication committee, this is the Association for Supervision and Curriculum Development. The publication committee has three major responsibilities or did at that time. The first is they selected the themes for educational leadership, which is the major publication of the organization. The second, they are a uh, review board for books. So ADCD published a lot of books and the publication committee was a reviewing body for a lot of the proposals for books that ASCD would publish. And then third, they selected a theme for a yearbook, which was the most selective, most prestigious of their publications. And we had a couple of books proposed to us on the topic of grading and these people came and made their presentations. And I just asked what I thought were some pretty basic questions about grading issues that really sort of perplexed me as a teacher and even as a, a college professor, and they were unable to answer them. Uh, and so the committee decided later that day not to publish either of those two books, but then had this discussion where they said, well, we probably ought to do a book on grading and you seem to at least have thought about it. So we'd like you to do this book. And so I was asked to put together the 1996 ASCD yearbook, which we called Communicating Student Learning. And to do that, I'm always claimed that I'm really not that smart, but I have the advantage. I have a lot of really smart friends. And so I just called my really smart friends and said, here's some of the issues. Would you write about these? And they agreed. So we put together that book and it was the first time we really tried to look at the research in grading and what was going on in the practice of grading throughout the United States, North America, and throughout the world. See, and th these stories absolutely amaze me when we put in the dates, because a, a lot of my colleagues, a lot of people I work with really see this kind of grading reform as something that's new. But you were talking, th this was 1996. And right. I mean, with some of the research that I know you've used and some of the research that Sharna, you and I quote, go back to 1910. This is not as new as people think. It's just, it seems to have taken a little bit of time to get it rolling. But yeah, <laughs> these are not new ideas by any means. No, you're absolutely right, Robert. In fact, in 2016, the American Education Research Association was celebrating its 100th year anniversary. As a part of that celebration, they put a call out to the field asking researchers and scholars if they would take on the task of summarizing all the research that's been conducted over that 100 year period in these different areas of education. So together with my friend, Susan Brookhart, we put together an amazing team of people that have been interested in investigating these things to develop this article to summarize the research and grading. And I guess what surprised us the most as we got into this was to discover how much we know, how long we have known it, and how little has found its way into the practice today. One thing that it convinced us was that there's probably not another area in education where there's a bigger gap between our knowledge base and our practice than in the area of grading. I, I absolutely agree. I think that is a point that we have tried to make in a lot of our trainings, it, it just dumbfounds me how long we've known about some of these issues mm -hmm. and yet how little has been done about them. Right. I, I often start presentations by describing 
a study where these researchers were concerned about teacher subjectivity and grading. Their names were Daniel Starch and Edward Elliott. And they were concerned about, at that time, the use of percentage grades and how they were being assigned. So to test this out, they took two compositions prepared by high school students. And they made copies and they sent those papers to uh, 200 high school English language arts teachers and asked them simply to grade the papers, use whatever criteria, whatever they would use for their own students, and to assign a letter grade and percentage grade to both of the papers. They got the papers back from the teachers and found, as you would guess, the grades were all over. We just yeah. all over. 15% of teachers gave the papers grade of A, the highest grade possible. 13% gave failing grades to exactly the same paper. In terms of percentage grades on the first paper, they ranged from, I think it was like 65 to 98. On the second, they ranged from 50 to 97. So Starch and Elliott published their study, but as soon as their study came out, people criticized them. And he said, well, first of all, you chose writing. Writing is very subjective. Not everybody agrees on what good writing is. You stacked it as in your favor. And second, you chose high school English language arts teachers, and everybody knows they're a crazy lot. And you can't trust them anyway. So why would you be surprised? So what Starch and Elliott did so cleverly they took two math papers and repeated the study, sent the papers out, found greater variation among the math teachers than did the English teachers. And everybody says, well, how can that be? Well, a lot of the math teachers just counted correct answers because they felt that's what kids would have to do when they took these large-scale assessments. But many of the teachers gave partial credit. How they gave them partial credit very drastically. Now, when I share these results, nobody seems particularly surprised by them. But what they are surprised about is to learn when Starch and Elliott did their research. And I share them that Starch and Elliott did their research the same year that the major headline in the newspaper was the Titanic sinks. Yep. It was 1912 that they did their studies. So yep. yeah, it's astounding. Yeah, the, those are the exact studies that, that we bring up in a lot of our research. The, the research was in 1912. I think the paper came out in 1913. Uh, and they've and it's been replicated now several different times, and the results are exactly the same. Right. And in fact, hundred years later, <laughs> yep, um, we actually replicate in. it. Oh, yeah, really? We, we'll do this with a lot of our trainings. We'll throw a problem. Here's two problems. Get a room full of educators. Tell mm -hmm. them to grade it on a ten point scale, and we'll get everything from two to to ten. <laughs> <laughs> we usually don't we, get 10 because we have errors in the work. We usually get well, nine. Two to nine. Yeah. But, uh, but we, we've probably done that with what at this thousands, point? Thousands. Thousands of educators. That's and true. Every, every single time we get at least a seven point range at a wow. 10. And what's fascinating is it takes time. So we'll throw up usually, depending on who we're talking to, let's say we're talking to university math faculty, we'll show up a basic sequences and series problem. And it's a sequence, it's a pattern thing. And it'll take them two to three minutes to think through and do it. And then we repeat it later in the training on a two level rubric, a good enough not kind of thing. And it's 15 seconds. Everybody knows instantly whether it's good enough or not. So it wow. drives home that one of the objections that people give that this grading takes so much longer. And, you know, we say, no, the feedback takes longer. The grading <laughs> takes less time. I wanted to go back, though, to the timing of, of some of the work you were talking about in the 90s, because mm -hmm. I am old enough that I was actually already teaching as well in the 90s. And my, I'm a second generation math educator. So my mom was very engaged in K through eight reforms, but focusing on cooperative learning, which we now call active learning. And for all the things she did, I never heard her talk about grading, not <laughs> once. And when I started doing my stuff, I ran into walls. I couldn't make it work the way it was supposed to work. Active learning wasn't working for me until I brought the grading in. So I'm wondering, you said it's the biggest gap. Is it also the biggest impact across classrooms and disciplines, the grading? specifically impact on students you mean or yes their and their learning yeah it truly is i remember and i often tell the story about my experience with grading my very first year teaching as i explained i was a middle school teacher and in our middle school it was our practice to give final examinations to our eighth graders 
we thought this was a good idea. We thought it would prepare them for what they were going to face in high school. And I remember so clearly the first year I did this, I was standing outside of my classroom door uh, greeting the kids, one of my eighth grade classes, they were coming in to take their final exam. And down the hall comes my superstar, Jessica. She had done so well the entire year. And I was so pleased at, at how well she had done. As she came in, I said, hi, Jess, how are you today? She said, fine, Mr. Gusky, how are you? I said, great. I said, Jess, did you study for your exam? She said, no, not really. I was shocked. I, I said, Jess, how can you not study for your exam? This is such an important part of your grade. And she looked at me really quizzically and she said, well, Mr. Gusky, I, I worked it out. I only need a 50.2 for my A. I didn't have to study to get a 50.2. This eighth grader had worked it out to the 10th decimal place. What she needed to do to get the A in my class, and she was surprised that I didn't get it. And I thought, wow, what have I done? And here's this brilliant young woman. And for her, school was not about learning. It was about getting the grade. And she had done her job, and she was shocked that I didn't understand that that's what it was about. And that, that changed me completely. I just thought, wow, what, what are we doing with this whole process? So I, I, I've got to ask, when was this? When was this? Yeah, what, what, what year was Because you said this was your first oh, yeah. year teaching. I, I started teaching in 1970s, actually, just after I graduated from college. 1970, and we've already got students that understand and have gamified the percentage gradings. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, nothing about learning. It's all about that grade and what do I need to do? How many points do I need to get? Yeah. So, again, nothing this is nothing new. This is not some right. new phenomenon. Well, what is amazing, though, in the same context, is that we're working on a new book on grading with integrity. And what I did as a part of this book was to go back and look at the number of new books published on the topic of grading. And it went from 1970 to today. And it was really fascinating because if you look from 1970 to 1990, those 20 years, there was only really one major book published on the topic of grading. A total of four, but only one that really had an impact. And it was a book that was called What'd You Get by Kirschenbaum and Sidney Simon and a group of authors. In fact, the University of Michigan just published the 50-year anniversary of that book. And so here you get 20 years, we got one major book on grading. From 1990 to 2000, there were seven new books came out. On it. From 2000 to 2001, there were 14 new books came out. This is from 2010. From 2010 to 2020, <laughs> 57 books came out. Yeah. And from 2020 till today, we have another 25 new books have come out in just those four years. And so it's something where the field is now being inundated with experts and consultants on this topic that are are really making their careers out of dealing with grading issues. I did not realize that. I mean, like I said, I, I knew this has been around for a while and it hadn't gone very far. And I knew there were more research and more um, books and studies out there about it. I did not realize th that steep of exponential growth. It's right. Well, the other thing to keep in mind, though, is that not all the ideas they're advocating are really research based. Yeah. There are very few scholars that are writing books on grading. Most of the books on grading are really developed by people that have been in education and now are making their careers consultants. When I asked Boz if he wanted to do a podcast and he said yes, I had done some research and we have not found any podcasts that are solely dedicated to grading, mm -hmm. except this one. This episode, we're, we're now almost seven months in. And we're just beginning to scratch the surface, which I think is very cool. So I wanted to ask, where do you think we are? What has happened? So the trajectory, you're, you're working in the University of Chicago Public Schools with all that. I'm sorry, the Chicago Public Schools. How has it been? You, you, you explain the trajectory of the books, but how has what you've seen on the ground changed over the last 30 years? Where are we now versus where are we then with grading reform? Yeah, I'd like to say that we've made significant progress, but there really isn't a lot of evidence to indicate that's the case. In most places, schools have been trying to initiate grading reforms, and they've been trying to approach it from a sort of logic basis, showing people the 
corruptions that take place within the grading process, showing the difficulties with regard to grading scales. They argue about the devastating effects of having a zero in a percentage grade scale and how that can affect students' grades. And so they're initiating discussions, but we're, we're addressing the longest held traditions we have in education. And the other dilemma that we have is that almost all schools today are using computerized grading programs. And those computerized grading programs are based in very traditional models. They're not developed to initiate best practices. They are developed to make what's traditional easier and more efficient for people to use. And so it's the one area in education where technology has really worked against us. There, most of these computerized grading programs, and there are over 50 available to educators throughout the United States, but there are three that, that really dominate the market. These three programs control uh, over 65% of the sales of computerized grading programs uh, in the United States. Uh, the number one bestseller is program called PowerSchool. PowerSchool is a product of the Pearson Corporation. They now establish their own individual division. A second is a program called Infinite Campus. Infinite Campus sort of dominates the central part of the country. Here in the state of Kentucky, for example, all schools are required to use Infinite Campus. A third is called Skyward. And Skyward pretty much dominates the West. Many schools there in California, um, Oregon, Washington State, Colorado, those use Skyward. Um, but they all sort of perpetuate these traditional models um, because that's what people are using. And most of them, in order to do what's really better, require significant workarounds. They require turning off some of the default functions within them. And so that's another thing that sort of keeps us from, I think, progressing more rapidly in terms of reform. Yeah, that's interesting. We've actually talked quite a bit about the different LMS tools and gradebook tools and how you kind of have to hack them to make them really work for any kind of alternative grading scheme. Yes, very true. Yeah, I, I know here in LAUSD, we're required to use Schoology. Which, which is, is a PowerSchool product. Which is a PowerSchool product. And they've gotten a little bit better with their mastery tab, which is separate from their gradebook. And, but yeah, you do, you have to go in and, and change a lot of the defaults to make it really work. Right. We had an experience here where we were working with a number of school districts in the state that were looking on grading reform. And just a year before, we were wanting to develop a video series where we were going to interview schools and teachers in particular and students where these grading reforms were being implemented and they were getting some good results. <laughs> we ended up shooting everything in Canada. Uh, <laughs> Canadians are far more progressive with regard to this. Uh, and so we were, we were trying to implement some of these things we saw in Canada that we thought were working pretty well. One of the things that we saw in some of these Canadian schools is they actually put the teacher's photographs right on the report card. With every class, they would have the name of the teacher and the photograph of the teacher right on the report card. And we thought that was kind of a cool idea. I asked the Canadian educators why they did this. They, they just wanted to personalize high school report cards in particular were so impersonal. So we tried that here, but it was something that our computerized grading program was unable to do. They couldn't do it. And so we went to them and we said, we'd like to be able to do this. Could you help us out? Could you make all of the program to allow us just to fill this in? They said, well, we could probably do it, but it'll take us about six to nine months. And they estimated the cost to be somewhere around a half a million dollars. Wow. My friend here at the university sat down and in one afternoon wrote a program to do exactly what we wanted. Our program sits on top of their program. It imports class rosters and prints the new report card. I mean, it's nothing more than a sophisticated Excel spreadsheet with different fields that you populate. And so it's not really that hard. It's just there's a resistance on the part of some of these corporate interests to do that sort of things. So one of the things that you just said about the resistance is something that we've learned, our perspective we're really focused on training teachers to do this. Mm -hmm. We'd love to do systemic change, but one of the things I did learn from my mom is that change really happens when you go teacher by teacher. Mm -hmm. And you've got to really work at that grassroots in addition to the administrative level. And one of the things we've experienced is just how personal and relational grading is between the teacher and the student. And so 
approaching all of this logic, like you were explaining, everyone's going after this logic, doesn't really help teachers understand how their personal value system is playing into their grading. Right. And so creating a safe space for teachers to explore that and to explore what does an A mean to that teacher based on what their experience was in getting or not getting an A themselves right. has been a fascinating process. Yes. So it just resonates so much. Right. Yeah. In fact, that, that brings up a really interesting point because we... As I mentioned, my primary research interest has always been on the process of teacher change. And we find that in any professional learning experience, there are three areas of change that we're trying to impact. That we want to impact people's attitudes and beliefs. We want them to believe this is a better way of doing things. We want to change their attitude about it and change those dispositions. A second is we want to change the practices. We want them to do things a little differently. And a third, we'd like to get some change in results, especially student learning. Now, nobody argues about those being the three major areas of change. The question that I posed though some years ago was, in what order do those changes occur? They don't happen simultaneously. And if you're going to be effective as a change leader, then you need to consider that order because you need to think about where you're going to put your time and, and energy. And so I was able to trace the history of professional learning in uh, our country, at least, and found there was a long and distinguished history based on the idea that for teacher change, the, the order of change is considered to be attitudes and beliefs first, that results in change in practice, and then you get some change in student learning. And I was able to trace this back to the work of early change theorists, Kurt Lewin, for example, who wrote in the 1930s and 1940s. His ideas were based a lot on psychotherapeutic models. It's a basis of like Alcoholics Anonymous. You change your attitude toward the problem, then you get some actions, then you get some results. Unfortunately, Pretty much all of our research on teacher change shows that's not the way it works. The more typical order of change for teachers is practices first, student learning second, attitudes and beliefs last. And it's because it is experience that change the attitudes and beliefs. And so the implications of this is number one, if you're trying to change those attitudes and beliefs directly, you're pretty much doomed. It's not going to work. It's very, very difficult because they have a, a wealth of experience behind them that's different from this. You've got to focus on changing the experience. Second, it shows that you really have to concentrate on follow-up versus initial training. Now, so we, we know that to be for, true for teachers. We find that that same order of change holds for students. That all these programs that we've designed to try to change students' affect and their growth mindset, and their persistence, and their perseverance, their grit, have met with modest results the best, because their experience shows them otherwise. And it's very difficult to change that. You have to change the experience. Instead of teaching kids that they control the conditions for their success, show them how they can gain success by having that control and taking advantage of it. We now know that the same order of change holds for parents. And so when I go into any situation, I've always joked that if I can change people from cynical to skeptical, I'm very happy. That's all I'm working on. And my idea is that I hope that they leave their skeptical and to say, I'm not so sure, but I'll give it a try. Because if they give it a try and they can see that it makes a difference, if they get those results, then only then the attitudes and beliefs begin to change. In fact, we actually have growing evidence to show there's a very direct relationship between the magnitude of change in students and the magnitude of change in the attitudes and beliefs of teachers. Small change, small change in attitudes and beliefs. Huge change, drastic change in attitudes and beliefs. And so when we were trying to initiate an effort here in Kentucky to change the framework of the report card, we did not spend a lot of time trying to orient parents to it or trying to gain their support or anything like that. What we did was this. We brought together a group of teachers here at the university in the Summer Institute. And these were schools and districts that had approached us saying they were struggling with this effort and needed our help. So we brought them together at this institute and they worked for a week in the summer to revise the report card, develop a new structure for it. We wanted to do things like include your photographs. We wanted to break out these non-achievement factors, report them separately. And so they developed a framework for doing that. 
we had a different framework for the elementary and the secondary report card, but they had their framework. When they went back to their schools, we didn't really focus on training the parents or we sent them a little letter saying we were going to change the format for them and we're hoping to get their feedback and the results. What we did was this. All the schools here in the state of Kentucky sent home report cards on a quarterly basis every nine weeks. For the first two marking periods, we sent home two report cards. We sent them an additional one they were accustomed to getting, and we sent them our new one. Our new one had the teacher photographs on it. Our new one pulled out these non-achievement factors, we put them separately. Our new one broke subject areas down. So instead of a single grade for language arts, you get a grade for reading, writing, listening, speaking language skills. So for two marking periods, parents got both. They could compare them side by side. After the second marking period, we surveyed all the parents and we said, look, we don't have the resource to keep sending you two any longer. We're going to send you only one. You get to pick. Whichever one you want is the one we will send you. 100% of our parents chose a new one. We have amazing parent support because it's better. It's just absolutely better. And so we didn't try to change attitudes and beliefs directly. We changed the experience. And by changing the experience, they had a very different disposition toward it. And what surprised me, so we've done follow-up surveys asking parents what they most like about the report card. You know what always comes out on top? The teacher photographs. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't even our idea. We stole that from what we saw in these Canadian schools. We now have this problem, though. We do include the teacher photographs, and we asked the teachers to be smiling in their photographs. We thought that was a good idea. Here's the dilemma. If a teacher assigns a low grade, should they really be smiling about it? So <laughs> now we're thinking we maybe need two photographs. We'll have a frowning one and a smiling one. We'll alter it depending on the grade that they give. My friend tells me it's easy to do that for it overall. But it's, it's just had remarkable success because of our orientation toward the change process. I've never even thought about it, but that's amazing because, yeah, if you would have asked me what order of change needs to happen, I probably would have said what you guys started with, that the attitudes and things had to be the first thing. So that is absolutely fascinating. And you're right. I mean, Sharona, you and I have banged our head on the walls sometimes trying to change some of the attitudes and beliefs of educators. So right. that just makes sense. But yeah, we have a little bit of a mini experiment going on. Uh, because I coordinate a statistics course. I've done it for the last six years. And we didn't give those instructors a choice. It's a very tightly coordinated course. And I managed to persuade the person I was redesigning the course with back in 2017. I originally wasn't going to try and do mastery grading or alternative grading. And and then Uri Treisman gave a speech from the Dana Center. And I said, oh, crap, I have to do this. So I managed to, to persuade my co-coordinator and so we didn't give anyone any choice and we didn't train anyone on redesigning the course. We just said, this is how the course is designed. This is how it works. Here's 15 instructors. You're going to do it this way. And we weren't sure what was going to happen. And the first year, the design was a nightmare. It was a terrible design. And we got a couple of instructors who were like, a couple <laughs> instructors said, I'm out. But then most of them stayed. Yeah. With, without, I mean, they were trained on how to do it, mm -hmm. but they weren't trained on any of the real philosophies. And six years later, a lot of them are still with me and are now actively engaged in, in improving the course. And then this semester, I had an administrator come in and dictate that several of the course sections had to pilot going back to traditional points and percentages-based grading. So two of my instructors who've been in the program for a long time got tasked with teaching one section with mastery grading and one section with traditional points and percentages. And those poor teachers, I, it hasn't come up yet. It's still too early in the semester, but they think it's going to be fine. Oh. I think they're going to be very unhappy and yeah. it's not going to work, but we're going to see. Yeah. But I, I still see. love the idea of let's pilot something that's been done for a century, but yeah. And shown to be wrong, but, you know, who wants well, evidence-based practices? Yeah. I've had very similar experiences, too. I mean, one of the things that, that I've changed in my own teaching stems from what I learned in investigating these areas of, of research. I found this study 
that was conducted in 1958. I researched by the name of Ellis Page. And Ellis Page in 1958 made this discovery that when kids come back to school or at the start of a semester, start of a school year, a lot of their attitudes and their perspectives are pretty much up in the air. It's like it's a new year, new course, new teachers, new books, new locker. Maybe this year will be different from all other years in the past. That flexibility continues until the first assessments are administered. And those first assessments are graded. The grades put to get into categories and getting out of the category is real tough. So if a kid comes back and takes that first quiz and gets a C, it's not that we do it to them. They do it themselves. The kid says, well, it looks like it's going to be a C this year in this class. The second quiz was run. What grade did they anticipate? Another C. And so Paige made this statement in 1958 that if you look at how well kids perform on the very first quiz, given at the start of a semester, as part of a school year, you can predict with amazing accuracy how well they're due at the end. And I said, well, that, that just can't be true. You can't look at kids in the second week and predict what they're going to do at the end. And so I decided to replicate Paige's study. I got the high school records of 30,000 high school students. And I was able to look at the first academic grade they got at the school year. And I found just as Paige had discovered in 1958, we were still giving a quiz around the second week of school. And I was able to keep that and go to the end of the school year and look at final exam grades and final course grades. And I tried to use the first quiz grade from the second week of school to predict achievement at the end of the year. How accurate do you think it was? I mean, 50%? Probably. I bet it was scary accurate. Scary accurate. 80 to 85% accuracy. School didn't matter. Subject area didn't matter. And so what I say to teachers, is, look, if you know in the second week what's going to happen at the end, why go to the trouble? I mean, just say to kids, look, here's your grade. I know it's going to be. But it, it also shows if there's one time you give kids success, give it to them in the first unit. Give it to them in the first unit. Because that sets the disposition of all that's going to follow. And so what changed me about this, and I, like you, Anna, uh, um, the department I'm in in the university here is, is called uh, uh, Educational Counseling and School Psychology. But uh, I get to teach the courses that are required of all graduate students in education. So I teach research design and what we call quantitative inquiry, which is statistics. Uh, and I used to, in that statistics class, I wanted to let them know how difficult it was going to be. I wanted to let them know that this was a challenging course. They could not, as they do in other courses, sit and take careful notes or write a paper at the end and get a good grade. No, 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 no. You're going to have to devote time to this every day. You're going to have to do this work. You're going to have to be very vigilant about it. I would lose 20% students from first class to second class. 20% would drop out. And I thought, we got to weed them out anyway, right? Why not? Then I read Paige. And Paige says, give them success from the start. This is the time you can take advantage of it. Change me, my approach to teaching completely. Now, my first, and you like this, my first class is what I call my Tina Turner lecture. And here's the way the Tina Turner lecture works. Um, they come in on the first day and we do, we go over this syllabus and we talk about grading. They do an individual project and a group project. We have the rubrics for those, go over those. But I want to give them success. So one of the things we do in statistics, even in introductory courses, we spend a lot of time on regression analysis. And with regression, what we want to do is we want to take information about one thing and use it. We can combine it statistically to predict some other. So if I wanted to predict how well kids did in school, I could take a measure of their previous achievement. I could take a measure of parent support. I could take a measure of how much homework they do. I could take a measure of their level of aspiration. I can combine those and predict with some accuracy how well they're going to do. And so to give a practical example of this, after they understand the concept, I have a little questionnaire. 15 questions, very personal questions, asked about nobody else in their life, just about them. And it asks like about their age and their background, their likes and dislikes. And I show them that I can take their answers to these 15 very personal questions, ask about nobody else in their life, put them on my computer, and through regression analysis, I can predict with amazing accuracy what their spouse is like. Their husband, their wife, their partner, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, they're always shocked. They're always shocked about how amazingly accurate my predictions are. Now, the question, of course, is, why do I call it my Tina Turner lecture? What's love got to do with it? Come on, folks, you got to stay with me here, right? But see, now they leave the first class. I mean, it's a little funny. They get some joy, but they see how it works. They get in there and they leave with success. 
I get everybody back for the second class now. I don't lose anybody, right? And I did not know this until just a few years ago, reading about this work that Ellis Page had done in 1958. I mean, why don't we know about this? Why don't everybody understand this well so we can try to make sure those early learning experiences are successful for kids and let them know that they can do well in this class. It has such a powerful difference and makes a bunch of powerful influence. We need to be able to do that better. Yeah, the, again, 60, 70 year old study. That's amazing and scary at the same time. So I have a question for myself. I want to know the answer for me, <laughs> which is as someone who feels that she's found her calling, which is promoting grading reform. I've always been interested in changing the way we teach at the university in math and mm -hmm. in STEM fields. And after years of figuring out how to try to do it, I've landed on this. This is my thing. What should we, people who are really committed to trying to continue the acceleration of this, be looking at and focusing on to continue with what seems to be an, an exponentially increasing interest in this? Right. Well, I just wrote a piece on pretty much that same topic about where we need to begin and what things are really essential prerequisites. And I think one of the most important activities is just to get people to sit down and work on developing a purpose for grading, a purpose statement. When people come to me and they ask me questions about these particular policies and practices, my initial follow-up question is always, what's your purpose? When you're clear about your purpose, then you go back and look at all these policies and practices and see if they align. And so I have a purpose statement that is one of the opening paragraphs in my course syllabus. And I let my students know that I want their grade to represent what they have learned and what they're able to do at the end of the semester. And that I want the, to be able to reflect their learning and mastery of, this, of the clearly stated course goals and learning outcomes for it overall. We're going to have it be reflecting achievement, not necessarily these what we call learning enablers. And so when I say to my students something like, okay, here's the deal. If you do better on the final than you did in the midterm, I throw out the midterm. They're shocked. And I say, but go back and read my purpose. I don't care where you were halfway through. I care a lot about where you are at the end. And I think if we start with that purpose, we have that purpose clear. Like, for example, a lot of schools, when I engage them in this process and they develop that purpose statement, they will say things like they want the grade to reflect what students have learned and were able to do at this time or currently. Well, as soon as you put that in your purpose statement, you throw out averaging. Yep. It says it doesn't matter. But see, it's the purpose statement that has to guide that. You can't just go into schools and say you're not going to average anymore or you're not going to use percentage grades anymore because it goes counter to all their previous experience and everything that they've known from a traditional perspective. You've got to give them some rationale. And if they develop a purpose statement first, then they have the rationale to do it. So have them develop that purpose. What's the purpose of the grade? Why is it given? Who's the audience for it? What are you going to try to communicate? Second is, and this is really hard to do at the university level, because of the programs in which operate, but it seems to be essential to use multiple grades to really pull out those non-achievement factors and report them separately. There's huge controversy taking place in school districts throughout California right now because they are working with consultants that say, don't include these non-achievement factors as part of the grade. Don't include homework. Don't include class participation. Don't include any of these things. Well, as soon as you say to students, they don't count, they're not going to do it. And they're sort of shocked. I say it counts, but you have to report it separately. And so if homework is important, give a separate grade for homework. I know this sounds just completely revolutionary, but what's odd is if you go to Canada, they've been doing this for decades. They have an achievement grade on the report card, but then have a separate grade for homework, a separate grade for class participation, a separate grade for punctuality and turning assignments. Now, when I first saw their system, I said, well, it looks great. It looks like so much extra work. They turned back to me and said, it's easier than what you silly people do in the States. <laughs> because we collect the same information as you. We just don't worry about how you weighed it and how you tallied at the end. We report it separately. Now, it's harder for us to do at the university because we are still stuck in these systems that require us to only report a single grade. 
But so we ha we hacked that in our class. Oh, great! I'm very proud of it. Oh, uh, we actually wrote a learning outcome that, oh. depending on the situation, it's called habits of mind. But basically, my argument is I need to teach you how to be successful. And we lump preparation, participation, and practice into this one learning outcome. It's one out of 15 or 30. Yeah. And it's a accumulation standard. So it's not averaging. It's like there's a massive number of points available. Get so many of them in whatever combination you want and you're done. Oh, that's and wonderful. That's terrific. So it, I, I love it. I came up with it a number of years ago. And it sidesteps because we hear this all the time in our trainings. Everyone asks what to do with this. And we <laughs> spend more time than it's worth explaining about this. But my attitude is, if you feel it's important for them to learn how to prepare practice, and then it's just as much of a learning outcome as anything else in your course. Exactly. That's so good. I mean, it's so wise. And it's one of the rare instances where I've ever seen it being done at the post-secondary level. Yeah. So that's, that's tremendous. You need to make that better known. That's really wonderful. Well, so what's happened is that's my version of it. It has percolated out into different people call it essentially learning community, okay. learning outcomes. You have a piece of your grade that is your participation in the learning community that is our class. It does get mixed with achievement, but at a much lower level than traditionally, because traditionally, especially deadlines are probably over 90% of the weight of your grade, even though technically they're not. But this way, it's one out of 15, one out of 25. Uh, and by the way, if you want to skip it completely, you can still get any grade in the class. You just have to get more content done. Right. Yeah, so. we, we did a study where we looked at grading practices among college universities. And, and we found that the, the majority uh, seemed to start off with this idea that you have an A on the first day of class. But every time you screw up, I'm going to knock you down. And yeah. so for every class you miss, you lose this many percent. Or we even saw some professors who would indicate if your cell phone goes off in class, your grade is lowered by this percent. Uh, and so it's like all these different ways where we're going to take your A away from you. So number one, you start with your purpose. Number two, report those non-achievement factors separately. And number three, a reasonable number of grade categories. You got to get it down to four to seven. We just can't have 101 categories of student performance, more than half of which represent failure. We got to get rid of percentage grades. And so those three things, if, if we did those three, I think we'd make remarkable progress in not only the honesty and meaningfulness of the grade, but the integrity of the entire grading process. I had one quick question because I'm curious. You said that when you went to Canada and looked at all these Canadian um, instructors and their grading, did all of those different grades get reported on a transcript that post high school would see? Is it just the academic grade that they see? Like, yeah, where does that come in? Well, this is why they are so better prepared and more insightful about this process. So you can get on the website for the Ontario Ministry of Education and in Ontario, what they did was this. They said, look, all the schools in our entire province are working with the same state standards, provincial standards. They're working with the same assessment program, the same accountability system. Why should every school have to develop its own unique report card? Why can't we get some smart people together and design one that everybody can use? And so that's what they've done. If you go to Ontario, every school in the province has the same standards-based report card. And they pull out six different non-academic factors to report separately on the report card and on the transcript. These are carried over because if you say to high school kids, well, it's going to be in a report card, it's not going to be a transcript, well, then I don't have to worry about it. But exactly. these are going to go. But what's interesting too is you've talked to the faculty at the Canadian universities, they are accustomed to this. They are used to these things being reported in that way. And so you get a much more meaningful profile of the student's performance. In our schools, the only places in the entire application portfolio where admissions people have any access to that information are the letters of recommendation. And our admissions people always tell us they're the least consistent, the most difficult to interpret, uh, and the most time-consuming to read. But they have found a way to do it in very meaningfully. They have rubrics for each of the six categories of these non-academic factors. Uh, it's just fascinating to know that this has been going on there for about 20 years. 
See, that's because I'm in LAUSD, and we do have three different grades that we report. Mm -hmm. Academic achievement, a work habit, and a cooperation. Mm -hmm. The problem is a lot of the students know this, and a lot of the teachers know this. The only one that shows up on the transcript is the academic achievement. So, uh, of course, we still have to punish students for not doing homework and everything else in the academic one, because that's the only one that shows up. But I I also want to give out a a shout out to our Canadian listeners. Almost 20% of our listeners are coming from Canada. So Mm -hmm. I I had no idea that they were so far ahead of the curve on this. So shout out to our neighbors to the north. Yeah. Yeah. They are far less bound by tradition. Now it does differ drastically from province to province in Canada, but you see tremendous grading reforms taking place in Alberta, in British Columbia, in some of the maritime provinces. They're really thinking forward about this and trying to do it in ways that are going to be meaningful and helpful to students. This is fascinating to me because I had an experience this very week that made me think of you even aside from this uh, podcast today. I'm aware that you have a book called On the Mark, right? There is a brand new book out, well, brand new, it's a few months old, called Off the Mark <laughs> by um, Schneider and Hutt. And I just heard them on a podcast. I ordered the book. I haven't read it yet, but it says how grades, ratings, and rankings undermine learning but don't have to. And on the podcast that I listened to, they were talking about having what they call double clickable transcripts. So they pointed out that transcripts, talking about history, came from the time when you could only put the entire transcript on a single piece of paper because schools had to store them for so many years before computers Hmm. that there just was a real space limitation. So everything from the title of a course and its course catalog description to everything was very, very refined. And they said, now with computers, we could have double clickable transcripts where you can see the transcript, but then you can click on something to get more information, whether it is a narrative grade description or it's a narrative of everything. But I haven't read the book. I just ordered it. Uh, But it was just so interesting to me that it was off the mark, on the mark. And that you both are now talking about transcripts. So I am going to link that for everyone in the show notes, but off the mark, how grades, ratings, and rankings undermine learning, but don't have to. Yeah, I need to find that. I didn't know about that book, but yeah, there's a center at the University of Southern California that investigates, their whole center is devoted to research on the enrollment process. And their director is a fellow by the name of Jerome Lucido, who's been asked specifically about this. He's a, just a brilliant fellow who looks at this and has a real keen sense to the, the practical dilemma of what they need to do to go through that. Now, what you shared is a little bit, I think, misinformed. It used to be that high schools would keep very extensive records on every student there. And that, that persisted until the Freedom of Information Act was passed, which was back in what, the 1970s, 1980s. And when the Freedom of Information Act was passed, every high school in the United States had a huge bonfire where they went through those records and they purged them to take out all those nasty things that teachers said about you and me when we were in school had been removed from those records. And so they went down to a a much more sort of focused record that only included uh, your grades, your transcripts, some record of the extracurricular activities in which you were involved, any particular academic or extra activity awards you might have won. And so when the Freedom of Information Act was passed, then we tremendously reduced the records that were kept on students for it. But the transcript itself never really had to be included on a single page. College universities were accustomed to getting these multiple things, portfolios, application portfolios. It was always a tremendous challenge. I mean, even I'm sure at your university, the University of Kentucky is a relatively small state university. We're nothing of the size of like an Ohio State or Wisconsin. But even at my university, the admissions department interviews has to go through 24,000 applications for an entering freshman class of about 8,000. It's huge. Now, how long do they have to go through that and really make some sense of it? And so they are trying to capture that information. But what Lucido says is that we want this information, but we need it in a readable form. And so the idea of being able to incorporate that on a transcript in a short form that says, these are the things we look for. Here are the criteria. This is the rubric that we use to determine these grades. And here's what it means. It's something they would really welcome. 
there's definitely a lot happening, a lot going on. Yeah. So as we're getting to our time, I did want to ask you new books you have that are out or coming out. It seems like you have a couple of them, Engaging Parents and Families in Grading Reforms and the third edition of Implementing Mastery Learning. Is there anything you want to share? Exciting new stuff. Yeah, he has his copy. I have mine. Well, um, do you want to yeah, talk the, about any of that? The third edition of Implementing Mastery Learning is, I hope, a really useful book. It it tries to pull together all the research been conducted on mastery learning since it was it was developed nearly uh, fifty years ago. Benjamin Bloom first outlined the ideas in 1968, and then sort of broadened them and redefined it a bit in the early 1970s. I always get frustrated because it was really Bloom who brought the idea of formative and summative assessment to education. I mean, he borrowed it from his good friend, Michael Scriven, who had described this in 1967, I guess. Scriven talked about it in the context of program evaluation, that he faulted program evaluators because they only looked at what happened at the end. And he said, you should be gathering information all the way along as a program is being implemented to give feedback into the program developers so they could refine things and you'd be better when you got to the end. So in, in 1967, Scriven writes about this in the context of program evaluation, described it called formative and summative. In 1968, Bloom says, let's use this in education. But if you look at all the books on formative assessment that are out there today, how many cite Benjamin Bloom? Very, very few. And I keep saying, just because the idea is new to you doesn't mean it's new to the field. We need to be able to honor the contributions of these amazing people. So that's what we tried to do within that. In fact, the challenge the publisher made to me was that he wanted me to write a prologue in the book describing what it was like when Bloom first developed the idea. So I had to go back and try to think of what was going on in our country in 1968. Uh, actually, Benjamin Bloom wrote this. He took a leave of absence from the University of Chicago, one of his very rare leaves, and went to work at the Evaluation Center at UCLA. And he wrote this article while he was there at UCLA on what he called learning for mastery. We've read it. Yeah. In 1968, I mean, this was the height of the Vietnam War. You know, there were, there's the height of the civil rights movement, you know, protests on campuses all across our country. This is an amazing, controversial time of great conflict going on. And so trying to frame that in terms of that context was really kind of challenging, but fun. The other book on engaging parents is just from our analysis of all these schools that have tried to go about grading reform, and they find that there's tremendous pushback from parents. And I think those sort of things don't have to be. The book was written to try to un help people understand what parents' perspectives are toward this, toward grading reform, and to understand the change process. If you want to change those perspectives, how to go about it. So the whole chapter on there in the change process of what we talked about earlier, there's a chapter that talks about surveys we've done to what parents' concerns are about grading and trying to help educators understand it because they're arguing about the wrong issues to get them steered toward the things that parents really, really worry about. One of the greatest things that parents worry about is the inconsistency in grading policies and practices among teachers in the same school. And so to be able to bring about that consistency, you got to start with your purpose. So I talked about that. And finally, I'm working on a book with two of your California colleagues, Doug Fisher and Nancy Fry. They're at San Diego. We're working on a new book called Grading with Integrity to think about bringing integrity into the whole process. We're talking about integrity of the grade, integrity of the grading process, and integrity of the grader, and trying to show how those all three come into really making this process more accurate, meaningful, and equitable. Any kind of estimation of when that one might be coming out? We're hoping that it'll come out this summer. Okay. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, that's one thing that Bosley and I are, at the moment, dramatically avoiding, <laughs> is writing a book. We decided that podcasting and talking was a better venue for us at the moment. And of course, we're coming up on the fifth annual grading conference for higher education. We have not yet managed to figure out how to make the K-12 one happen again. We had the one that you were keynoting at, but it was much more difficult logistically, actually, yeah. than the higher ed one has been. Yeah. So a lot of interest, especially in California right now. I mean, school districts... Uh, are really interesting ideas, and many are struggling because they're not getting good advice on how to go about it. So I think your work is really going to be instrumental in helping them. 
Well, feel free to send them our information because we got lots of good ideas. All right. <laughs> I will be sure to do that. <laughs> uh, Boz, any final questions or thoughts? No, we're coming up on our time. I just want to, again, thank you so much for agreeing to come on with us. Like I said, you have been such a huge influence on me and, and my career and my trajectory through this. And I know you've been such a huge influence on so many others. I don't think I do a single training where case against the percentages isn't used. <laughs> you go through our 30 something episodes. I don't think there's many that I don't mention your name somewhere in, in the podcast. So it has been a great honor to be able to sit down and talk with you for a little over an hour. So thank you so much for, for coming on and talking with us. Oh, it's been my honor to be invited. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our opportunity to talk. And if other issues come up, don't hesitate to get in touch with me. I'd really enjoy that. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm pretty sure he did make it all the way through the episode without issuing the name Tom once. <laughs> so just, just to point that out. Thank you, everyone. Register for the grading conference and we'll see you next week. All right. Take care. Thanks again. Please share your thoughts and comments about this episode by commenting on this episode's page on our website, www.thecreatingpod.com. Or you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. If you would like to suggest a future topic for the show or would like to be considered as a potential guest for the show, please use the contact us form on our website. The Grading Podcast is created and produced by Robert Bosley and Sharona Krinsky. The full transcript of this episode is available on our website. The views expressed here are those of the host and our guest. These views are not necessarily endorsed by the Cal State System or by the Los Angeles Unified School District. <laughs>